Hello, friends, and welcome to this edition of the Coming In for a Landing podcast on the Liberty Ballers Podcast Network. I'm your host, Paul Hudrick, and we had to do another episode this week. Of course, we had Doris Burke on the other day, who was uh, excellent, fantastic, breaking down the series so far and going forward. She will have the call for Game 6 Thursday night on ESPN, so look forward to that. Today, I have another very special guest, uh, my good friend and, and a former colleague from NBC Sports Philadelphia, their Sixers insider, and that is the great Noah Levick. Noah, thank you so much for coming on, man. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, not in the same very special category as Dor- Doris Burke. You know, well, in my personal opinion, but uh, nevertheless. So, so few are. No, that's not an indictment on you. That's just doesn't mean that you're not. You're obviously a very special guest as well. But yeah, it's Doris Burke. I mean, that's. That's like some mountaintop stuff. That's exactly. some good stuff. Uh, to comparisons, have doors. comparisons are not valid there, but yeah, thank, thank you. For <laughs> and uh, yeah, we've got got a big one coming up. So exciting, sure exciting times in the Sixers world. Yeah, uh, and you were there in Boston for Game Five. Wild one, um, wild in the sense that not that really anything particularly wild in the game happened. Just wild that this is a Philadelphia 76ers team that we all know is struggled at this time of year in the second round um game fives i think you know haven't when the series 2-2 i i can't remember the exact step but it had been a very very long time since yep. they had won a a game five tied 2-2 um so a little first bit of unfor- what's that first time yeah literally the first it was literally time. the first time literally the first time so yeah uh so there you go such a long time that it's never happened um but yeah i, I mean so you know they kind of found themselves in sort of unfamiliar territory with basically a wire to wire win um, and pretty comfortable for the most part. Um, there was never a point for me where I felt like, Oh, here we go. Like uh, this, this is, this is where it happens. This is where they kind of unravel. I, I never felt that. I mean, there was a moment or two where maybe the, the Celtics went on a little bit of a run and got momentum, but it felt like every time the Sixers had an answer. Um, and it also felt like the crowd just, never got into it just they never had like an opportunity to get into it um you were there so just kind of um lay it out for me describe the scene and and just the overall vibe and feel uh, of the game as a whole yeah i think what stood out to me is essentially every controllable in that game the sixers were damn near perfect uh of course every single shot doesn't always go in and i think joel Embiid was correct afterward to say i missed some that i usually make he got a lot of good mid-range looks. And Doc Rivers said before the game, it's going to boil down to make or miss a lot of the time. But I think if you remove that from the equation, the Sixers were just obviously superior across the board. I think they got the first four offensive rebounds of the game. Tobias Harris got nine rebounds in the first half. And just consistently now with this team, you see the little speed bumps don't seem like very big obstacles at all. So Harris getting in foul trouble for a second straight game, you know, Boston having those mini spurts, uh, Tatum, you know, hitting some tough shots in the second half. It it never really mattered very much. I I think it was also noticeable that the team has responded awfully well to Doc Rivers' timeouts this series. So I think Boston cut it to 22-19. The Sixers get an ATO that uh, eventually leads to a maxi and the dribble handoff maxi zooms in for a layup and then boom end of the first quarter you know he's firing up threes the way the Sixers love to see and he's knocking all of them down 
So I think at that point, it felt like Boston was in a shaky spot. And then it's, okay, what's going to happen in these Embiid-less minutes? Generally, that's not been a bad answer in terms of Paul Reed's role. But you look out there and you see Daniel House Jr. And the Sixers start the second quarter with a 7-0 run. All of a sudden, the lead's 14 points. You start to hear the boos from the home crowd that expects much better than this from the defending Eastern Conference champions. And at that point, the game was over. Uh, Yes, the Sixers have not always been awesome this year at holding leads. There's been quite a few games where they've had a significant lead, then they've lost it, and then they've eventually... Yeah, (laughs) that that was the blueprint, right, for for quite a few Sixers wins this year. Uh, But for me, once that lead expanded to 14 points because of the Embiidless lineup and with the way Jason Tatum was playing and just the Celtics overall approach and body language. Uh, I didn't think the Celtics were, were going to win that game. And, and it was, I think, stunning for those, those fans who already had one shocking loss in this series when James Harden you know, went off for 45 points in game one. This was a different kind of shocker, and the Sixers, who knows if if they're capable of duplicating this, but it didn't feel fluky because it wasn't just, oh, they hit a million tough shots and players had career best nights or anything along those lines. I think for the most part, everyone executed their jobs at a high level. The focus was fantastic collectively, and... They played a great game, and and Boston, in contrast, uh, did a lot of stuff that is open for criticism in terms of the strategy and, you know, in terms of the performances from their their best players. Uh, In contrast, I think the Sixers got exactly what they wanted from everyone who took the court. So can't get much better than that, and uh, it leaves them, you know, on the verge of doing something special here if we're talking about uh, you know, special accomplishments. Yeah. It's, it's funny because the way you describe how the Celtics played, I feel like we've, this is how we've looked at the Sixers in previous years in the playoffs, right? Like the bad body language, um, getting down and kind of letting it snowball and not, not kind of, you know, overcoming it and not overcoming the little things. And now it's completely flipped. The Sixers are the team who doesn't let that happen. Um, they're the team that doesn't, you know, when, when guys hit tough shots or when things don't go their way, they don't, they don't like, you know, for lack of a bit, like don't turtle up. I mean, they, they keep playing. Um, and to see Boston do that, like you mentioned too, like a team that's, I mean, they were in the Eastern conference, you know, they were the, in the finals last year, they're Eastern conference champs and argument to, to be made, they, they got better. Uh, you know, with the addition of Malcolm Brogdon, with Derek White, you know, having more run here and having more familiarity with Robert Williams, perhaps being healthier now than he was at, at this time last year. A, a lot of reasons to believe the Celtics team was actually better. Um, and it, it's, it, I think a big thing was the Sixers and you kind of touch on is, is kind of, it felt like they were the aggressor all night. It felt like they were setting the pace. They were setting the tone all night. And, the Celtics were kind of back on their heels, which again, for Sixers fans, that's a very refreshing change of pace. I, I would imagine. Um, I- I'll say the the one thing I've noticed about the Celtics and, 
and this isn't like I mean they're a great, they're a great team. They won fifty seven games. Uh, they were the second they had the second best record of the NBA for a reason. They're they're still a great team. Their half court offense has really not been impressive um, at all. And it, I know that that was a, a a point of emphasis for the Sixers. And I know everyone like the first ten seconds, like they're one of the best teams in the in the NBA. The first ten seconds of the shot clock. I would like to know where they rank the next 14 seconds of the shot clock because it just feels like the Sixers in the half court have really had their, well, you know, outside of maybe the first half of game one, uh, they've really had their number in the half court. And Joel Embiid, I know, is a big part of that. His rim protection has been otherworldly. But what have you seen in that regard? How do you think the Sixers have been able to have so much success um, in the half court defensively? Yeah, I mean, from where I'm sitting, Perhaps the team's half-court defense has been underrated throughout the season. and That's also fair. I think just the vast majority of games where they are poor defensively, a lot of that has been transition. And they nipped that problem in the bud, I think, rather well. Uh, it was an historically abysmal start. Like Literally, if you know, looking at the numbers of how many points their opponents were adding through transition play over the first five games, and then, you know, as George Yang tells it, there was a, one of these honest, frank conversations initiated by Doc Rivers in which he basically said, if you don't get back on defense, there's a good chance you're not going to be on the court. And they've not been bad at all uh, in terms of their transition defense since that point. Uh, sure, there are occasional instances where they slip up and guys get lazy about you know doing what's necessary and you know picking up the ball there's memorable instances of that in the regular season against the Boston Celtics looking back you know at the film before this series I, I thought it was funny just one play where Al Horford gets a defensive rebound just dribbles down the heart of the court and no one guards him so he takes a three uh, so yeah the, the Sixers in transition need to be sturdy they understand that and then in the half court, like any defense that has Joel Embiid back there is probably not going to be very bad. Uh, I think game one, there was probably some unsustainably hot shooting on Boston's end. And then in contrast, of course, last night, the Celtics will tell themselves that they missed a bunch of good looks and that Al Horford's not going to shoot over seven again. But I, I do he's think... Low 30% for this, for the, for the, is it for that? For just for the series, I think he's over thirty percent. And yeah. over seven is going to do that. And yeah, he was like a forty-five percent three-point shooter during the regular season. Yeah. But the team, I think, has also become better at those little things that PJ Tucker harps on. So we heard a bunch of early in the year guys saying the communication just isn't good enough, and there are too many times where we're not on the same page about a coverage, or we're, we're too late to you know, have the low man over there helping. And that stood out to me last night that not only was there extraordinary effort with the defensive rotations and, you know, trying to be a cohesive unit, but uh, they actually were like, there, there weren't really noticeable plays where, you know, guys both went to, you know, guard the same man and uh, the scrambling was just really sharp and, uh, not a flawless defensive effort, but it feels legit to me that as long as the Sixers keep the game in the half court, uh, they're not going to have dramatic problems on defense. And 
part of that's also Tyrese Maxey uh, raising his game on that end of the court and yes. uh, taking, I think, personal accountability that he can't be a weak spot for this team. They need him to play a lot of minutes. And in order for that to happen, he has to be sturdy, you know, on that end of the ball. I also think, you know, probably worth pointing out, the Sixers had zero turnovers in the first nearly 17 minutes. And that does feel like an especially important part of the formula for this team. Don't turn the ball over, uh, leave the transition defense less vulnerable to problems. And they're usually going to be in a nice spot overall, I think. And I believe they only had seven turnovers in all of game four, um, which is, again, that went to overtime and they only had. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's and that's it's where Boston thrives, too, because like you said, I mean, that that feeds the transition game and like what Boston was really good at during the regular season. I mean, they were the second rated defense in the NBA and they turned people over and that's what they did. They turned defense in the offense. And when you're limiting those opportunities by a not turning the ball over and then B by getting back on defense and having your defense set. It's, it's obviously huge. And yeah, I, I I'm glad you pointed out Tyrese Maxey because I, I agree. I mean, you know, the switches on Tatum and Brown, I mean, they just haven't been able to really just, you know, take advantage of them or the, the help, as you pointed, the help's been really good in, in those moments where maybe he does where, you know, a Tatum or a Brown kind of uses their strength and their, and their size to back them down and get into a favorable position. You see, the help defense really, you know, doing its job. Or you see Joel Embiid just erasing everything at the rim. Um, so yeah, I, I I I think that's a great assessment of where they are with the half court, and it does. It stems from getting back, stopping the transition, and then it allows them to set their half court defense, which has been. I, I think you're correct in saying it's probably been a little underrated because when they've been right, when they've been fully healthy, when Joel Embiid has been fully engaged their half court defense was excellent um, during the regular season. And, and I think that's just showing up here um, on the bigger stage. Uh, you brought up Paul Reed and, 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 you know, the minutes and how, you know, they not only did they not lose the Paul Reed minutes in the first half, they actually won them. They built onto the lead. It's just so wild to me that we've gone from a point where it felt like every year in the Joel Embiid era, it was the backup center was, more than often than not the biggest topic of conversation as far as what this team needs, what this team is lacking. And in this playoff run, Paul Reed has pretty much erased that, right? I mean, it's been no no one like no, no one is on Twitter screaming about the backup center. It's not the, the, the topic of conversation. Like, the only reason I'm bringing it up is because it's like not a topic. Um, but just what have you seen? from Paul Reed, where do you think are kind of his biggest areas of growth that have kind of allowed him to just play the game, like simplify his game, be that role player and just, and just, you know, and give the Sixers positive minutes when Joel Embiid isn't on the floor. Yeah. I guess for me, the, the framework with Paul Reed is like predictability versus unpredictability and that whole continuum. So, you know, in the G league, Everyone raved, you know, positively about the chaos that was inherent to his game. And it was almost unavoidable. Like if he was on the court, every single play, he was going to be in the middle of it. And that's great to have that nose for the ball and for the opponent to not always know what's going to hit them. You know, whether it's some quirky, you know, spin move or Euro step or, Uh, flying, you know, with a great defensive rotation or whatever. 
But some of those instincts, I think, if you are an NBA backup center, are not ideal. And the Sixers emphasized that with him heading into this season. And I think you started to hear him grasping that. So I think back to, you know, training camp preseason and he's learning some of the nuances of how to run DHOs from Montrez Harrell and uh, how to be effective as a roller in tandem with James Harden. And he's starting to think about it through that lens of my teammates need to know what to expect from me. So I think often with Paul Reed, people have thought of it as like avoiding mistakes and being dependable and playing the part of a veteran so that your coach has trust in you. But for me, I think it's neat to recognize him finding the right middle ground for him between predictability and unpredictability. Uh, And I think that is a fantastic aspect of his development. I think if we're being honest too, a lot of it's just, does James Harden trust you on the court? So James Harden plays a key role in who shares the floor with him. And there's been a dialogue throughout this year with Doc Rivers about what the ideal lineups are when Embiid is off the court. And initially, you know, according to Doc Rivers, Harden had a significant preference for Montres Harrell, who he knew well and whose tendencies he understood. And of course, Harrell brings a lot of good stuff to the table offensively. But I think more and more, uh, Reed has shown James Harden that I am beginning to take the feedback that you give me on when you want me setting screens, how you want me to space the floor, and slowly but surely, uh, that trust has been gained with you know the most important player for Paul Reed to gain that trust from. And I think, obviously, the Doc Rivers side of it is big and draws a lot of scrutiny. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rivers, I think, still has some skepticism that Reed is capable of executing multiple defensive coverages and processing uh, complicated information because he has made mistakes in the past when the Sixers have uh, tried to vary their schemes and that sort of thing. But the more reps that you get in high-stakes situations and thrive in them, inevitably the more... Uh, the people in charge are, are going to feel pretty good about you handling those well. So definitely Paul Reed is is not a perfect player, but I think he's begin, begun to think more this year about what kind of player am I? What kind of player does the team want me to be? And like most importantly for him, that trust factor. How can I gain trust? And you're not going to gain trust if you're unpredictable 100% of the time even if that's really fun and effective on occasion. It is so, fun. <laughs> yeah, it, absolutely. I mean, I think one of you know my, my favorite plays to watch in person this year was that uh, wild one against, against the Nets where he's just yes. <laughs> unexpectedly juking guys out of their shoes. And uh, that, that sort of wild play is always on the table with him. But I think he, he gets now that, that's cool. And you don't need to eliminate that entirely, but uh, be dependable, be predictable with offensive rebounding, solid screen setting, uh, knowing 
you know, what to do defensively. Something else, if we're just talking strictly like this time last year that I've noticed is he doesn't like bite on pump fakes anymore. I mean, foul trouble was a huge, huge concern yes. in that Miami series to the point that Doc Rivers cited it as a reason he, you know, leaned toward DeAndre Jordan when Embiid was out those first two games. And I remember going through the, the film of that Heat series and, you know, Jimmy Butler is especially savvy, but sure. there were so many plays where he was in good defensive position and he's he's leaving his feet as a guy takes a mid-range shot and he's just taken that out of his game entirely. And uh, that's, I think, pretty significant progress in an important area. So uh, he has developed quite nicely here and I think has risen to the occasion uh, time after time in the playoffs, uh, which is, which is cool. I think he's never lacked self belief, and he's sure. he's just he's a gamer, right? Like he's always he's gonna, out the mud. No, yeah, he's out the mud. He's always going to think that <laughs> like any challenge, he's going to crush it. But uh, the self assessment side of it and the growing maturity uh, that has been helpful in complementing you know those core traits that make Paul Reed who he is. I remember the the practices during the week of the play-in before this before the net series started, and Doc had that perhaps too honest uh, answer. Uh, I think was it you? I think you might have asked one of the questions, right? Where he kind of went on about like what you're talking about with the coverages and how we can only trust him to play one coverage and and all that. And um, I just remember thinking like, man, he's gonna pull the plug on this like pretty quick. Like I, I think Paul's gonna have a real short leash. But I give Doc a lot of credit because there were like maybe a couple times where maybe he could have done that. Maybe not even. I mean, maybe really one. The only time I could really think of is maybe game four when he really wasn't very good in the first half of game four against the Nets. Um, and maybe he could have thought about doing something different, but he stuck with him. Paul Reed rewarded that and played great. Um, that might have been his best stretch as an NBA player. Uh, he was excellent. I think game one against Boston, I mean, Paul Reed played all, almost all the minutes. I mean, he played like yeah. a Joel Embiid load in that game. Right. And he was not perfect by any means, but he's in there as the Sixers center down the stretch, and he's the guy knocking down the uh, clutch cool free throws. Yeah, so, four, four straight. And he came up with a big defensive play as well on the on the Celtics' uh, real last offensive possession that they were still in the game. Um, And, and like, really, I mean, Doc has a, a very viable option in PJ Tucker at the five and it hasn't been needed. Um, that's still kind of in doc's back pocket if he ever wants to use it. But Paul Reed has been so effective that it hasn't been necessary. Um, I know we, we, we've talked before about, you know, how effective PJ was at the five for the heat last year. And right now, I mean, it's, it, it's worked out better that Paul has really stepped up and taken that, you know, it's, it's only what I think he played maybe six minutes, I think in, in, in game five, but like, Hey, those six minutes have been have been positive, and that's that's a great thing. Um, and if they can, you know, maybe play him an extra minute or two and buy Joel and beat a little bit more time, that might not be a bad thing either. Um, to keep him fresher for the fourth quarter. But um, I, I'm definitely want to get into Joel and B two a little bit. But I first want to touch on uh, Daniel House, and it, it's it's crazy with him because when they signed him in the off season and got tampering charges for it. I think we all looked at it as like, okay, like this is the guy now who, 
you know, with re- with respect to Matisse Thibel, like this is the guy who can give them balance, who can be, yeah, like he can be a good defender. He he can lock down, you know, s- some some really good perimeter players, but also he's not a minus on the other end. He can hit a three. He's really good in transition. He's athletic. Um, as I know, you pointed out, he's a you know pretty good connective passer. Um, can can you know knows knows where to go with the ball. Not not a playmaker of of the ilk of you know a point guard or like a James Harden, but a a solid sound passer made a really nice play to Tyrese Maxey for a big three um, at a key spot in game five. But I, but like, I think when he was signed, we all kind of had this vision, like, okay, like this, this is the guy. And then really he just got off to such a bad start and just really found himself out of the rotation. And, and, and doc didn't go back to him for a while, but I give doc rivers credit for two things. One kind of, as he would say, he kept them alive. You know, he, he played him down the stretch and, and let him get some time when they had that brutal schedule in March and April, he he let him get some minutes and let him get some run and kind of got him reacclimated and got him back into things. And I thought, you know, I thought Al gave him some good minutes uh, in, in that regard. I thought he played some, you know, he had some key moments during that stretch. And then for Doc to kind of trust his gut and go with him in that spot, uh, it's it's a hell of a gut decision to make, and he made it, and it was so effective because House was so good. And I think too, Noah, like the one thing I, I believe is like uh, some people wonder like, Oh, well, why didn't you go to house sooner? You know, when McDaniels was struggling wh- wh- or, you know, Niang wasn't great in games one and two, but he obviously was decent in, in three, four five, but wh- why didn't you go to house sooner? And I kind of think house not playing. Like he looked like he looked faster than everybody. Like, right. Like he looked fresh. He looked, he looked, and I, I get, he's already a fast athletic, energetic player, but I thought it was like, it was like he was like in hyperspeed compared to the kind of everyone else in the series who's kind of been fighting and, and, and beating each other up. So um, I guess just what what did you see from House? And, and do you think that perhaps, you know, he, him kind of coming in as a super fresh player maybe was to his advantage against some guys who have played a lot of tough minutes already in the playoffs? He was, he was great. Uh, he – it just felt very, very fitting for me, I think – when they signed him, what what stood out to me is like any situation you roll the ball out there, this guy, he doesn't need to know the plays. Sometimes he might not know the plays, right? And like, he's going to find a way to, to help your team. Uh, and part of that's athleticism, but like James Harden was very complimentary also of his, his basketball IQ when his instincts uh, and his sense for reading situations and, knowing how to play off star talent. So all, all of that, when they signed him, popped to me as encouraging. And last night was the ultimate situation where Doc Rivers didn't give him any sort of heads up. And yeah. his number was called. And he basically said, all right, it's it's go time. It's it's Daniel House time. I love that quote, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's, that's the mentality, uh, I think, you know, that's pretty consistent from him. So... He, he was excellent. I think, yeah, the, the 10 points are nice, but the defense on Brogdon was also quite valuable. Doc Rivers, after multiple games, the Sixers have lost to the Celtics this year, has been like, man, Brogdon, you know, crushed us. And if we, you know, essentially didn't concede 20 points to a guy off the bench, we probably would have won this game. Well, I think Brogdon was three for nine last night and, you know, the couple minutes house gave them on Brogdon were damn solid. Uh, didn't commit any 
unwise fouls, solid tight defense on the ball, and contributed to the Sixers having that surge of energy early in the second quarter while the Celtics, in contrast, began to look rather deflated and you know fell into this sizable hole. So I think it's hard for me to have excessive praise for, for what Daniel House did. Didn't think it was stunning because it's very characteristic of him. And also, as we'd said before the series, I, I mean, just had a feeling that he could do well in this series, right? And like the reasons Doc Rivers cited for trusting his gut didn't need to necessarily apply, you know, just a game five, right? Like, yeah, he's athletic. Yeah. He's got good size. He can uh, play well with James Harden. You know, all, all these things uh, have, have always been true. But Doc Rivers' gut told him game five, and that was correct. I don't think I'd be quite as much on the same page that it was a big boost for House that he had all this time off. I think, if anything, it made it a little more difficult for him to play high-intensity NBA minutes without well, sure. yeah, absolutely the... wiped out. <laughs> Asking to come out of the game, yeah, sure. Yeah, he powered through as, as well as he could. Uh, he said, you know, look, these are, these are my brothers. It's a wee season, and... When my name is called, I feel like I've you know got to produce in that spot. Um, but I think honestly, regardless of the circumstances, he is a player. It can give you a jolt, and that can accelerate the pace and look awfully comfortable in transition and make smart, savvy plays uh, as a you know screener and roller or popper with uh, James Harden. So again, last night to me. Felt like a great performance from the Sixers, perhaps not a performance that they are likely to immediately replicate, but it also did not feel fluky. And I think I, I'd say that was the case with House's performance as well. The familiarity with Harden, I think, is is pretty huge. Uh, and just to have, I mean, you know, for as talented as his team is, they're just not the most athletic team in the world. And when you took Jalen McDaniels out of the mix, which I think was the right decision because he, he really, he really struggled. Um, but when you do that, you do lose something there with that athleticism and that size. And I think with house that's, you're making up for it in that regard. And I think the, the chemistry with Harden is huge. Uh, it, it did make a huge difference. Like, like you said, when he's, when he's screening and, and you kind of, you know, play like playmaking from the middle of the court where we've, we've seen D'Anthony Melton do that as well. When you have guys who can do that, uh, it's just when you have a you know a player a, a perimeter dominant ball dominant player like Harden and you have a player that's so dominant in Embiid underneath to have a guy who can just again just do that just be like a connector um and, and play in the middle of the floor and either find the corners find Joel in the post find someone else sneaking back door for a let or whatever I mean just to have and or, or just you know flat out drive to the rim and finish uh, at the rim he's an athletic player he can play above the rim and I, I you saw that on those you know, multiple drives where it was kind of like you, you felt like, all right, one of these is not going to go in. And he made every single one. Um, and if he continues to play and find his rhythm, maybe the, the three ball starts to fall. And then it's that makes that opens up things even more so. So, yeah, I, I, again, yeah, I, I agree. Just a phenomenal button push by Doc that maybe none of us that even he apparently didn't see coming until he did it. Um so yeah, uh, I, but I'm with you too. Like I, it's a guy who like just thrives in it thrives in chaos and is just you know he's been all over the place. His NBA journey, his life journey is is wild and some of the ups and downs of his career. So for him to just kind of step in there, I guess it's not 
not super surprising to see him do well, but at the, and at the same time, you you need these things, right? I mean, we saw what Lonnie Walker did the other night for the Lakers. I mean, you just need these outlier performances every once in a while where a guy who either hasn't played or who has kind of been quiet steps in and, and gives you really good minutes. That's that's the way these things tend to go in the playoffs. You need everybody to contribute at some point. And I think to your point, it was their most their 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 best team win. I think of the I would say probably the entire postseason where everybody really did play a part. Um, I thought, you know, I, you could, I know he got in some foul trouble, but I, I think you could make the argument that might have been Tobias Harris's best playoff game. When you look at the context of the opponent, an opponent that has, he has not generally played well against in a big spot on the road. Um, I know we had some good games last year against Miami, but um, those are kind of earlier in the series. So like, I, I don't know from a, from a playoff standpoint, that was one of, I thought one of, if not, Tobias's best kind of playoff game and Tyrese Maxey obviously kind of breaking through there and and a, a team he struggled against all season and in the first four games to break out and have that 30 point performance was also huge but um it all comes back to Joel Embiid and I thought he was not only you know the best player on the floor but I thought he was also like the most assertive player on the floor and he looked that way from you know from the jump I know they got off to a little bit of a clunky start he he hits that outrageous um step back three on the first possession um but i thought he just looked like that was the most the most like joel Embiid he's looked um through through five through well for the four games he's played i thought that's the most he's looked like him um coming up with that play on jalen brown just when you when you think back to all the stuff he's been through and look i mean he he's had some some rough moments and he's had some moments where he's let the injuries affect him. He's let circumstances affect him. And he's kind of, you know, even just going back to last year and it's not, I'm not killing the guy. I mean, the guy had a, you know, a orbital fracture in his face and torn ligament in his thumbs. I mean, he was clearly going through a lot, but to see him kind of overcome it in that moment where he has a turnover, doesn't sulk runs down the other end of the floor blocks Jalen Brown. And like, I thought that was the, the kind of dagger play. And then not only that hustles back down, and gets two free throws. I thought that was kind of the dagger play of the game where it was like, okay, like that, that, that probably takes the crowd out of it. That probably silences, you know, the, the Celtics kind of went into a shell after that and, and struggled. So when you're looking at the career of Joel Embiid, and I realize they still have one more game that they have to win in the series and a lot can happen um, between now and then, but Ranking Joel Embiid games, uh, 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 kind of looking at the magnitude and, and his, you know, the, the greatness uh, uh, of what he showed. Where would you put this as far as Joel Embiid performances when we're talking about postseason and, you know, and in the context of how big the game was for the Sixers? Maybe I'm I'm not as as high on it as you. I don't it doesn't stand out to me as like this is a contender for number one. I thought he played a great game. Uh, but he was like 10 for 23, which is not typical of Joel Embiid. Uh, no, did, like you said, he missed missed some shots that he normally makes, those mid-range uh, jumpers that he definitely is more prone to make. Uh, he did miss a few of those. That is fair. Yeah, and like the approach and the process and all of that was excellent. And like Boston honestly allowed him and James Harden to be pretty darn comfortable and patient, I think. Like Joel Embiid, you know, thought about a jumper and then declined it. He could just like, pass the ball back out to Harden and they could rescreen. And I think Boston 
perhaps aimed to apply a little more pressure on the ball, but didn't do that very successfully. And then, you know, once James Harden gets the screen from the MVP, the Sixers knew uh, the middle of the floor was really open and that Al Horford was, was going to stick in that drop coverage. So uh, I think the Sixers exploited that nicely. And I think the thing that felt most, this is a classic Joel Embiid game for me, was you know nine free throws over the second half of the second quarter. I think that was deflating for Boston. And uh, you know, I guess they only went into halftime down nine points. But you know, to your point about, about the dagger, uh, like as I said, I just didn't feel like the Celtics had any chance to win that game by early in the second quarter. The Sixers were that good. And Boston was that shaken. So absolutely an impressive play to highlight, right? The effort level uh, and the commitment. Um, I think you don't love the idea of sacrificing his body, right? Oh, but sure. yeah. uh, he often can't help himself. And, and he cares that much about winning uh, and wanting to help his team in those circumstances, which is, which is cool to see. Um, but as I said, I don't think this was a game where the Sixers got like an A++ performance from someone, and that is why they won the way you know was the case in, in, for James Harden in game one. I think many players played very well, and Joel Embiid was a chief among them, as he often is. And he was, yeah, the best player on on the court for, for the Sixers. Um, but, yeah, we look back to that Miami series last year, and the lasting impression for me was game five and six were collective no-shows. And you have Joel Embiid after game three making this comment that perhaps was blown up a bit excessively, depending on where you look, but saying the playoffs are less about adjustments and they're more about players showing up and you know doing their jobs at a high level. Uh, Joel Embiid has absolutely shown up, you know, in a literal sense, uh, despite yet again having what sounds like a significant, painful, not especially fun injury. And then he has elevated his game, you know, just enough in game four for the Sixers to pull that one out in overtime. Uh, and in game five, he was characteristically at the core of an excellent performance. I think for me now in this situation where they're up three, two, they're, a, you know, a game away from this historic accomplishment it just stands out. They started the regular season 12 and 12. Since that point, they were the NBA's best team. Joel Embiid was the NBA's best player. Again, to the, the broad theme of this not being entirely random or coincidental or something that we should necessarily be stunned by. He is a great player, even when he is diminished physically. And looks like we're watching a pretty great basketball team right now. Uh, albeit one that still needs to prove they can uh, seal the deal. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see if they're able to accomplish that. And I think you and I are, were on kind of the same page all year where, you know, you understood from some, from, from fans about like, ah, show me in the playoffs, yada, yada, yada. But if it didn't, it felt like a different team. And I know that's been kind of doc rivers message. And it's, it's a fair message of like, this team is not last year's team. They're not the year before. Like this is this year's team. A lot of these guys are new. They weren't here. Some of these guys, like, like they don't care about, oh, the Sixers have never made it out of the second round. Like, I'm sure it's in the back of Joel Embiid's mind. Like, I'm sure it is because he's a human being and he knows he hasn't made it out of the second round. So I'm sure it's there. I'm sure a guy like Tobias Harris, same. I'm sure it's there in the back of his mind. But um, I, I think all along, you and I have felt like 
hey, this this team's pretty good, and like they have some some reasons why it it made sense that they might get to this point that they might be able to beat a, a very good Celtics team, and why this. I mean, I, I said uh, going into the series, you know, outside of Joel Embiid's injury, obviously that was a huge factor, but I thought these teams were a lot more evenly matched than maybe some people outside uh, thought because like what you just said from, you know, since they were 12 and 12, they had the best record in the NBA from then. And that with the most difficult schedule in the NBA coming out of the all-star break. And I thought they played their best basketball during that, which is saying a lot. Um and like you said, best player, they had the MVP. They had the best player in the NBA. They had James Harden, who I think probably should have been an all-star. Me, the all-NBA thing was tough because the guard situation was insane. Um, when you look at the guys who, who, who made the all-NBA team, and it's just a, a really loaded um, group of really, really talented players. But, yeah, I, I, I think this team was, was, was maybe better than the outside perception and maybe even the inside perception of, of, of some fans who, uh, again, were kind of in that show me in the playoffs mode. And again, still have some work to do. Still a, a very big game Thursday night that they have to win if they, if they uh, want to advance, you, Nothing, could they win a game but... seven in Boston? Perhaps, yes. but you probably don't want to go there. It will probably behoove them to take care of business. Uh, Thursday night and close it out at the Wells Fargo Center. I'm sure the crowd will be pretty intense. I'm sure it's going to be a pretty wild atmosphere. Uh, but Noah, please let everyone know where they can find your work and where they can find you on uh, social media, Twitter, etc. cetera. Uh, yeah, Noah Levick, N-O-A-H, um, on, on Twitter, just, just the name. Uh, and you can find my stories over at uh, NBC Sports Philadelphia dot com and um i think that's the gist of it nothing all right nothing too complicated there a straightforward guy a straightforward um and that's perfectly encompasses your personality no um no but i appreciate you so much uh always a great time to talk to you and it's always uh i always feel like when you and i talk i rethink some things and i gain a little bit of knowledge uh from time to time so i always appreciate it when you uh, hop on and when we talk when we're not on the podcast so i uh, appreciate you as always and we appreciate everyone for tuning in to the Coming In For Landing podcast. Please rate, subscribe, download wherever you get your podcasts. I am your host, Paul Hudrick, and I will talk to you next time.